welcome back to the program. When we hear talk of the reinvention of our lives, we think reflexively that it's something we do in our 30s or 40s or even 50s. Today, though, men and women are both reinventing themselves into their 60s and beyond. Sometimes it's to pursue new dimensions of ourselves as we get older and wiser. Sometimes it's because of death or divorce. And sometimes as we live longer, it's because we face new financial imperatives. That's the journey for Rebecca Winter in Anna Quinlan's new novel, Still Life with Breadcrumb. Anna Quinlan, in addition to writing seven novels, winning a Pulitzer Prize, being a successful journalist, and being one of the few women to write a regular column for the New York Times, has been for the past 30 years a kind of cartographer of our daily life experience, providing a Decatur projection of contemporary life. It is my pleasure to welcome Anna Quinlan back to this program to talk about her new novel, Still Life with Breadcrumbs. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's, it's really good to be back. Great to have you here. I mean, I suppose that if she had more money, Rebecca Winter would be flying off to Italy and uh, reinventing herself in that way. This is, this is a little more real in terms of the problems that she faces. Well, you know, one of the things that occurred to me when I was working on this book, because it was very clear to me from the beginning um, that money was going to play a, a big role, as it does in the lives of so many people, um, was that we don't have a whole lot of modern novels that talk about money. Um, we have to look back to the Brits, the early 20th century Brits, the Forsyth Saga or Edith Wharton, for books that explore the difference that it can make when you begin to tumble a little bit out of the middle class. And, um, and that was something that really interested me, particularly in America at this moment in time. Why do you think that's true? Do you think that there is something inherent in talking about money or problems related to money that make us a little a little queasy on some level? Well, someone said to me, you've, you've attacked the last great taboo. And at first I thought they meant sex, but actually they were talking about money. And I, I do think that it's a larger issue than that. I mean, and, and it, it is in those early 20th and 19th century novels. People erect a facade around their own lives of, of who they are, of how they live, of how they will always live. And um, I think we do it today, too. And, and suddenly, when you're unable to keep up the facade, it's terrifying. And I think that that's what has happened to Rebecca in terms of her personal life, in terms of her um, financial life, and certainly in terms of her professional life. There's, there's a moment where she describes herself as um, the artist. No, I was Rebecca Winter. Not I am Rebecca Winter. I was Rebecca Winter. And her son says to her fiercely, you will always be Rebecca Winter. And it's that sense of having had a reputation of a certain sort and then having that begin to ebb. There is this nexus between reputation and money as they relate to each other. Or as someone once said about money, the only thing worse than not having money is having had it and then not having it anymore. Well, and, and there's also this sense of reputation that people assume generates money. So, you know, Hollywood is filled with actors who are well-known faces to people, whom people will ask for their autographs, who haven't really done much or had much of a success in movies or television for many years. And if you look Beneath that, this thought of, oh, isn't that so-and-so? 
you discover somebody who may be having a pretty hard time making the mortgage. And in the case of Rebecca, she's almost trapped into her success. The photograph that, that she takes, which is entitled the title of the book, Still Life with Breadcrumbs, is not something that she thought was going to be a reputation maker, which it turned out to be. Well, and that's something I'm fascinated by, too. The idea of whether art, good art, is what other people tell us it is or what we think and feel. I mean, Rebecca has made her reputation with a series of photographs that other people have interpreted um, as, as a commentary on domestic life, um, as, as a feminist statement. And meanwhile, she was just shooting what happened to be on her kitchen counter after a dinner party. And that idea that, that the world tells us whether art is worthy and important and therefore cements our reputation is something that, that really interests me in part because, um, because when you're a, a student of English literature, as I've tried to be, you look at people who you think are supremely talented and yet who have fallen out of fashion and think, well, what's that about? The other part of that is the fascination with popular culture and the extreme other side of that, which is, well, if it's popular, it really can't be that good. Yeah, there definitely is that. I mean, I'm well aware of that. I'm, I, I'm a huge fan, always have been, of Dickens. Um, I wrote my senior thesis at college on the women in Dickens. And um, there's always a little bit of a sense that, you know, Dostoevsky or Flaubert or Stendhal, the tortured geniuses, are really worth studying, but it, at the highest end, Dickens is, well, he's kind of a storyteller, which I think is about the best thing you can say about anyone. So um, I, I, I do love that idea that at, at the same time that Rebecca is being lionized for these photographs, there's a certain segment of her profession that looks at them and says, well, you know, they put them on posters. And so, you know, if, if every young woman wants it on her dormitory wall, it can't be any good. Artists also can get away with more, it seems, in terms of not having money or having reasons for not having money. Well, I, I guess that that's true. I mean, there is that trope of the starving artist. Right. But I have to say, living in New York City, um, living in New York City without having money is really a hat trick at this point. <laughs> um, you know, there, wa there was that blissful age when people squatted in industrial lofts um, downtown, but th that whole area of industrial lofts is now filled with um, Armani boutiques and, and four-star restaurants. So um, living here can be pretty punishing if, if you don't have some ready cash. One of the things that you've talked about with respect to this novel is it being more positive, less mean-spirited, more of a, a happy ending. Talk a little bit about that in the context of a time when some would argue things are more mean-spirited today. Well, look, we all know that every time is, um, is a time when we can say either the glass is half empty or the glass is half full. This was a response on my part to my last novel, Every Last One, which I, I, I did exactly what I meant to with and which I'm very proud of, but which was a very, very dark book at some level. And uh, the other thing it was a response to is that readers come up to me all the time about my novels and they ask me what happens next. 
And the reason they asked me what happens next is that something, there's been a, a serious setback for some character that they like in the book, and they want to make sure that it's only temporary, not permanent. Now, I can't answer that question because, as I say sometimes, I leave the novel at the same time that they do. But it suddenly occurred to me that for a hugely optimistic person, I had written a lot of unhappy um, denouements to my book and that I'd also never written a love story. And um, I decided that I wanted to do both. I wanted to write a love story and I wanted to write a book with a happy ending. And I must say, tonally, that required me to do something different than I've ever done before. Um, and that was something that I found um, really pleasing and really exciting because it, it stretched me some. And what were the challenges in being more upbeat, in, in being more optimistic? Um, the book has a lighter tone. And um, I think when you do that, um, you don't want to be too light. You don't want to be trivial. Um, I mean, I love, there's many novels that I love that have a, a kind of lightness of tone. I mean, the, the most obvious one would be all of the novels of, of Jane Austen, but especially Pride and Prejudice, which is often very, very funny. Um, but at the end of Pride and Prejudice, you don't think, well, Jane Austen once said the work is altogether too light and bright because she was denigrating her own talent. But the truth is, you don't finish Pride and Prejudice and think that. You think, now I understand something important and universal about men, money, and marriage. Um, and getting that tone exactly right um, was challenging. And I must say, I was probably guided mentally um, by my enormous admiration for Austen more with this novel than any one that I've written. And talk about Rebecca as a character who's 60 years old and having lived a full life already by the time she's 60. Well, I, I once wrote about an older character in a novel called Blessing, Lydia Blessing, who is in her 80s. And I must say that I was immediately taken by the richness of that. I mean, when you're writing about a 20-year-old woman, um, there's some very exciting things about doing that. But what you basically get is a 20-year-old woman. When I was writing about Rebecca, I, I was able to access in prose her younger self, her self as a mother, her self as a wife, her self as a divorced woman. So the, 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 the strata of the personal earth of a um, character who is older is, is simply richer in the same way that that the strata of our lives um, happens to be when we get older. And as a novelist, that's enormously exciting that if you want to write about a young woman, you can. And if you want to write about a middle-aged woman, you can, and an older woman. And they all happen to be the same woman. How much of a challenge is it, though, to write about someone reinventing their lives at that age, at the age of 60, and not be cynical about it given what she's seen, given the changes that have taken place in her lifetime? Um, I don't see that as so much of a challenge for me, in part because I, I have a very difficult time accessing cynicism. Um, some people <laughs> would say that that's, that's one of my prevailing um, faults. Um, I think the, the thing that I had to keep calibrating was 
you know, this is a, a, a book with a light tone and, and, um, and, and it is a book with a happy ending, but there's great loneliness and dislocation in this book. And, and writing about that in a way that wasn't heavy-handed or that wasn't heavy-hearted and yet was true to that kind of loneliness that you sometimes feel when you're on your own um, was a challenge. And I, I think those sections of the book, um, there's a section of the book where Rebecca is out hiking and tries to cross a, a railroad trestle over a very deep chasm that that I really worked on very hard because it, it it's illustrative of her sense of loneliness, of her sense of falling um, that that is very important, um, but you don't want it to feel so dark that it throws the whole rest of the book out of whack. Talk a little more about that sense of dislocation because there's such a large sense of it in the culture today. I mean, you talk to so many people and you get that, that sense of dislocation. Well, in Rebecca's case, in this novel, there's a metaphoric mm-hmm. way that I deal with it, which is, of course, she's very much a city person. She grew up in New York City. She has an apartment there. She's always lived there. And yet, for financial reasons and also seeking some fresh inspiration, she has sublet her apartment and is has gone to live in this cabin in the middle of nowhere, um, which suits her comfort level not at all. As she says at one point, the closet is filled with clothes that she hasn't worn since the day she moved in because they're so unsuitable for the life she's living now. And I think that I wanted to use that sense of dislocation to illustrate the deeper dislocation of feeling as though she was once a wife but no more. She was She's still a mother, but not a daily hands-on mother because her son is in his 20s. She was once a famous photographer. Now she takes pictures, but who knows if anybody will ever look at them and buy them again. That sense of, of the rocky ground of your own life. And I think in, in a society that moves as fast as ours um, and in which people are living so much longer, so the people in their 80s and 90s are sort of the first generation to make that up as they go, there's this profound sense of, of finding new footing, um, which some people have gotten very good at, but which is nonetheless a huge challenge. Could you have written this novel 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Oh, you know, you're always trying to, to gauge the depth and the limits of your imagination. I mean, my first inclination, of course, is to say, no, I'm, I'll be 62 this summer. And I know things now that I didn't know when I was younger. But having said that, I I wrote a novel, Black and Blue, about someone Mm -hmm. who is being beaten by her husband. And I'm told by people who know that subject area that I got all the details um, right. And the truth is, I, I imagined it all. I didn't know anything about that subject at all, and I didn't do any research. So, you know, you tell yourself over and over again, if you imagine it, um, it can happen. I mean, one of the things I found very gratifying about the reaction to Still Life with Breadcrumbs is that a number of photographers have told me that I got the, the ethic and the feelings of, of that sort of work exactly right. And that's enormously exciting for me because, again, I did no research on that. And, uh, you know, the, the most I take pictures is, you know, from time to time with my iPhone of my dog. <laughs> 
you talk about black and blue. It's interesting that th- there are some broad themes all the way back in black and blue that are not dissimilar from still life with breadcrumbs in this idea of, of leaving everything behind and, and moving on with your life in a profoundly different way. Yeah, I think that that's something that I, I'm very interested in. Frankly, I think it's something that a lot of women are interested in. Um, one friend of mine who just finished the novel pointed out to me the line where Rebecca says that she'd been different people over the course of her life without even noticing it. And I, I think many of us who are female have that profound sense. Um, you know, as our bodies change, as our situations change, as our children grow, as our marriages either falter or, or you know, go on for decades, we become we become different. We are um, reinventing ourselves and reinventing our lives. And it's certainly something that, that I'm interested in. Anna Quinlan, her new novel is Still Life with Breadcrumbs. Anna, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks. I hope we can do it again soon. Indeed. Thanks so much. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.